Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Murtaza Hussein. The past weeks have seen an intensification of the crisis in the Gaza Strip, as the Israeli military has proceeded with the early phases of a ground invasion into the territory. According to estimates, as many as 9,000 Palestinians may already be confirmed dead in the assault, the majority of them civilians. Despite pronouncements from the Israeli government that the goal of the operation is to eliminate Hamas following its deadly October 7th attack that killed 1,400 Israelis, there's little sense of how this goal can be achieved, nor what price Israel is ultimately willing to pay to pursue it. Joining us now to discuss the possible future course of this conflict is Khaled El-Gindi, the director of the Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute, and the author of the book, Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Khalid, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. So Khalid, we're speaking on Monday, and over the past week, we've seen major demonstrations around the world calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, following a very, very harrowing few weeks in which Israeli ground forces have begun an invasion into the Strip, including bombardment from the air and drones and sea and so forth that may have killed about 8,000 people to date. Can you talk briefly about what is going on in the Strip at the moment and also what we've heard from Israeli officials about what their plans are to continue with this offensive? Well, obviously, it's hard to know exactly what the situation is on the ground, having, uh, you know, not being there. But by by all accounts, it's uh, it's quite horrific. The, the bombing uh, uh, campaign has not stopped in 23 days. And on top of that, obviously, I think people, people know that uh, Israel has cut off all food, medicine, uh, water, and fuel to the entire population of Gaza, 2.3 million. And up until now, in the past 23 or 24 days, uh, a total of 94 trucks of humanitarian supplies have entered, uh, which you know, the basic subsistence needs of of the Gaza population are at least 100 trucks per day. Uh, so if you imagine in, tw- in 23 days, only a tiny fraction of, of what's needed has entered. Hospitals are uh, completely overstretched, uh, running out of fuel, and there's really no safe place for uh, civilians in Gaza. Uh, the north, for the most part, has has uh, been depopulated. Um, 1.4 million people on the um, have been uh, displaced to, to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. So this, uh, there's an enormous uh, strain on on healthcare workers. Um, but 
just immense trauma, the scale of destruction, I think, is impossible to, to overstate. Entire neighborhoods have been wiped out. Entire families have been wiped out. Uh, it's, it's quite horrible in, in almost every imaginable way. You know, Khaled, one of the things which has been most alarming about this offensive, including before it actually began, were some of the statements by Israeli officials about what their intentions and their goals are for this invasion. And, you know, we've seen Benjamin Netanyahu and many, many other current and former Israeli military and political officials officials talk in very stark terms, very extreme terms about what they hope to see happen in Gaza. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, what the statements and expressed intentions of Israeli officials have been to date? Yeah, I mean, as you said, the, the Israeli uh, political and military leadership is speaking in extremely stark terms, in really annihilationist terms. They talk about eradicating, annihilating, eliminating uh, Hamas uh, in its entirety as, as a, both a political and a, a military movement. Um, I think uh, they have not climbed down from, from that place, uh, you can, uh, the the rage uh, mindset is still very much in place uh, inside the Israeli leadership. Uh, I But I, I don't know anyone who thinks that ad, that's actually an achievable goal. Um, certainly Hamas's military capabilities can be wiped out. You can even wipe out the leadership. But uh, it's it's almost impossible to to completely eradicate a political movement, and uh, there will always be others who who come to the fore, even if the entire leadership is wiped out. So, uh, someone, uh, some grown up somewhere, ought to be talking the Israelis down from that tree because it, it is a recipe for for endless uh, death and destruction uh, because it's not achievable. The problem is that the United States has more or less adopted the Israeli objective of destroying Hamas, despite the fact that it's not something that that can be achieved. So it's it's hard to know exactly what the administration is communicating privately, but from their outward stance, they are echoing the the, the objectives uh, of the Israelis, albeit in less uh, apocalyptic terms uh, than what what is coming from the Israeli leadership. In the in Netanyahu's speech over the weekend, I think he did make a reference to international law and that Israel was abiding by it, and even talked about, you know, the the mythology of uh, the most moral army in the world. Uh, and so, of course, we we naturally uh, abide by these these things. So he did he did say it at least, but it's clear that it's garbage. I think in response to the fact that it's now a much more frequent talking point from American officials. So he had to respond and say, well, of course we uh, we do that. But at the same time, references a, a Bible passage that uh, is um, essentially calling for genocide. Yes, I saw that's the Am- Amalek. Was Amalek, the yeah. yeah. That's right. You know, recently a very terrifying development was the cutting of telecommunications services to the Gaza Strip. So many, many people, journalists and ordinary people documenting their lives there were no longer able to communicate with the outside world or with their families. And then we've seen at the end of the weekend that the service returned. And there were some re- reports that uh, that return may have been due to U.S. pressure on the Israelis to uh, reconnect the strip to the global internet. Can you talk a bit about you know what we know about this telecommunication situation specifically and also w- what 
forms of leverage does the U.S. have over Israel's behavior as it proceeds with this invasion? Well, obviously, the United States has enormous leverage with the Israelis. I, I, I think uh, it's clear that the United States was the uh, force behind reinstating or you know reactivating the uh, communications uh, in the Gaza Strip for for uh, for whatever reasons that seemed to be a red line for the Biden administration. And I mean, obviously, it's it's quite dangerous if. If people can't communicate, uh, people are injured, if people are trapped, if people, you know, in addition to ordinary people just trying to document their lives or stay in touch with loved ones outside of Gaza or even within Ga the Gaza Strip, the the implications of a total communications blackout for 2.2 million people is, is, is horrific. That, I think, clearly shows that the United States can use its leverage when it wants to. There are other things that Israel has cut off from the population, like food and medicine and water and fuel, that would seem also to be something that the administration can weigh in, and perhaps they are. But for for whatever reason, uh, the Israelis are not budging on that. And, and that's where I think we're seeing a real failure in diplomacy, a failure. It's a it's a moral failure. It's a diplomatic failure. Uh, the the inability uh, of the United States and the most powerful nations in the world to overcome what is very clearly a form of collective punishment and a war crime to deny an entire population of the basic life needs is, I think, inexcusable and something I imagine history will will not look favorably upon. You know, you made a very interesting point earlier that Israel stated a military objective of destroying Hamas root and branch, the political and the military wing is really something unattainable or it's something which is so broad and so vague that it would in, ensure endless war effectively in the Gaza Strip. It's something I've written about as well too and others have uh, spoken about on The Intercept. But I'm curious in your own take, you know, what is Israel's possible exit scenario from this conflict? And obviously, when you get involved in the conflict, you think of, we should think about the day after immediately. Do we have any sense of what they think the day after would be, you know, given that they're going to occupy Gaza at the end of this, presumably, and be responsible for the strip after Hamas is no longer in power as per their plans? I don't think there's a lot of thought being given to the day after on the Israeli side. Uh, I, I think based on what we've seen in the past, in 2006, for example, they declared a very similar uh, goal of wiping out Hezbollah and that war that was quite destructive and quite deadly. Obviously, they didn't succeed. And we also, uh, many people will recall uh, when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982 with the express goal of, of destroying the PLO. So history shows that it's it's not achievable. And the reality is that, I mean, they have clearly the Israeli side, they have not learned uh, those lessons, but they also, it's clear that they don't have a day after uh, formula. They're not particularly concerned with who is going to govern this this space uh, in the in the aftermath of of the operation or the the military campaign i think that the the expectation is that the international community will somehow figure it out and be able to pick up the pieces and i'm 
I'm fairly certain just from talking to people inside the administration, they also don't have an idea of what the day after looks like, nor are they uh, demanding that from the Israeli leadership as a condition for their continued unconditional support for the war effort. So right now, everybody's sort of making it up as they go along. You know, what's particularly shocking is that it's only been a few weeks of operation, and there have been about 8,000 conservatively casualties reported in the Gaza Strip, which is only a region of maybe 2 million people. And, you know, this war, Israeli officials are saying, can go on for months, can go on for even years. Some have said, is there a tolerance level that you perceive in the administration beyond which they may not continue supporting this? Or wh what can we say about the Biden administration's own calculus? Because obviously, the death and destruction in Gaza is also triggering reactions around the world. People are reacting with great emotion and great outrage to what's happening. And this is only seems to be getting worse and worse, particularly given the way the Israeli military is conducting the operation. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we have heard the administration say maybe more loudly that Israel needs to abide by international law and to respect the the, the rules of war, when I think it's fairly clear to, to everyone that there is nothing close to that happening on the ground. The, the statistics are quite horrifying. 73% of the 8,000 people who are killed, almost three quarters, are women, children, and the elderly. And then the remainder, of course, being men, it's, it's hard to know exactly how many of them are combatants versus civilians, but it's clear that the overwhelming majority of people being killed uh, are, are civilians. Yesterday, also, I saw a very a disturbing statistic. Uh, 3, 000, almost 3,200 children have been killed. And that number in the past uh, three weeks, that number is higher than all children killed in all conflict zones all over the world for any year since 2019. That is just a shocking level of death and destruction that should be unacceptable to the international community. So the tragic reality is that, unfortunately, the Biden administration and even Western European countries do seem to have a fairly high tolerance for uh, Palestinian civilian deaths and injuries. It's not clear where their red lines, I'm sure they have them, uh, but they haven't articulated any. And in fact, the Biden administration has said publicly that there are no red lines. Of course, the message they're communicating privately might be different, but to publicly state that there are no red lines when uh, we are seeing the, the scale of, of death inside Gaza that we're seeing, I, I think is, is irresponsible on the part of any leader, but certainly on the part of the most powerful nation in the world. You know, in recent weeks, the U.S. has deployed troops to the region as two aircraft carriers in the eastern Mediterranean as well, too. And obviously, they've been providing political support in public to Israel and diplomatically at the UN as well. Are there other practical ways in which this operation could not continue without U.S. support, uh, specific types of weapons or intelligence support that the U.S. is providing we know about uh, that provide us leverage if we were to put pressure on Israel to not continue the operation, even in a practical sense? Yes. I mean, the United States has many levers. Um, they could withhold uh, any of those kinds of uh, military uh, assistance personnel in an advisory capacity. Uh, but but even just the, the spoken word, we've seen in, in the past, the United States matters 
to Israel's decision-making. What the United States thinks is very important, because there is no one in the world uh, who would argue that the United States does not have Israel's back uh, and have their best interests uh, in, in mind. And so there, you know, like I said, there needs to be a grown-up somewhere who will tell the Israelis, this is too much, you've gone too far. Uh, so I think even the spoken word, the ability of the president to pick up the phone and tell the prime minister, you need to stop, um, or to lay out much clearer red lines publicly, uh, that is another way, I think, to signal to the Israelis that uh, American support is not unlimited, uh, but for the time being, uh, it, is, uh, it is unlimited, tragically. So, Khal, on Sunday, President Biden issued a statement uh, following a conversation with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi talking about the situation in Gaza. And he made a very interesting comment in part of the statement. He said, I'll quote, We reaffirmed our commitment to work together and discuss the importance of protecting civilian lives, respect for international humanitarian law, and ensuring that Palestinians in Gaza are not displaced to Egypt or any other nation, end quote. So in the past few weeks, there have been statements from Israeli officials and leaked documents from Israeli intelligence stating that one of the military goals or the most desired end state for Israelis would be the deportation, ostensibly permanently, of Palestinians from Gaza to the Sinai Peninsula, where they may live in tent cities or refugee camps and so forth, and the Gaza Strip would effectively be ethnically cleansed. Does this statement by Biden indicate anything positive in the sense of uh, pressure against that sort of outcome. And can you speak a bit about the issue of humanitarian corridors between Rafah and Gaza that has been brought up since the start of this conflict and how they tie into this idea of forced deportation? Yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 idea of forced uh, displacement of part or all of the population in Gaza is a major concern and has been from the outside. Uh, for for Palestinians, and and for others, I mean, it, there was clearly that potential. Once you move uh, 1.4 million people to the south, I think it's logical for people to uh, to draw the conclusion that maybe the goal is to push them over uh, the border into Egypt. Uh, and we know that Israeli leaders have talked about this in the past, uh, and they're talking about it now. Uh, the the Ministry of Intelligence, which is not actually an intelligence service and is maybe more akin to something like a you know policy planning department that they're sort of an internal think tank um, but the fact that they are putting this on the agenda in government circles is is horrifying and that seems to be a message that was received in Washington enough uh you know to the point that the president felt the need to to state that explicitly that uh, forced displacement of Palestinians is not on the table but it took 23 days to get to this point when those fears have been out there uh, for a long time. And so we're, we're seeing the start of what we might call red lines uh, emerging from this administration, but I, I don't think they have a clear sense of between now and, and whatever the objective is, what other red lines are. I, I think really they're just kind of as I said, making it up as they as they go along. Um, so the humanitarian corridor is obviously something that is important. You need to have some safe zone inside Gaza where where people can access uh, healthcare, food, 
uh, water, uh, and, and so forth. Right now, there are no places in Gaza that are safe, even in the south, uh, where supposedly people were supposed to be safe. Uh, the south of Gaza is also under bombardment. So humanitarian corridor, it depends on what, what we mean. Are we talking about a corridor uh, inside the Gaza Strip or inside Egyptian territory or something that overlaps the two? Um, who would set it up? Who would monitor it? Who would ensure its safety? Um, who would be supplying the, the, the humanitarian assistance that reaches there? All of those things are, are being discussed, but you know, here we are entering the fourth week of this massive uh, bombardment of Gaza and this humanitarian catastrophe, and we're still not there. And again, I, I keep coming back to this same conclusion of a complete diplomatic, moral, political failure in almost every way. Well, Khaled, I want to ask you about something you wrote a few months ago, before this conflict started in The Hill, uh, you wrote an article about the conditions in Gaza at that time. And you actually use a quote, which was very resonant now. You said that the next violent eruption in the Gaza Strip may be just around the corner. Can you talk about what was going on in Gaza before this conflict started? Because for many people, it seemed to have started on October 7th. Their perception of it is that way. But uh, what was the context in which that attack occurred? Yeah, right. Context is uh, is under attack. Uh, there, there is a backlash against uh, people who are trying to uh, insert logic and and reason into this discussion. To even hint that there is a context uh, is seen by some as a uh, as a justification for Hamas terrorism, which of course is absurd. I mean, nothing happens in a vacuum. There is cause. There is always cause and effect. And part of the cause in Gaza is you have 16 years of a suffocating blockade that has eviscerated Gaza's economy. It has, in the words of the United Nations, made Gaza unlivable for its inhabitants. So there were already people were talking about a humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza. Gaza's been suffering from this humanitarian crisis for for a very long time, uh, and it progressively gets worse. Uh, the suicide rate in Gaza has been uh, soaring in, in recent years, and there was this sense of despair and hopelessness. There, there was no respite, there's no horizon, there's nothing around the corner. And I think one thing people don't understand about the Gaza blockade isn't just that it has destroyed any semblance of normal life in Gaza for an entire generation, but nobody actually knows what it would take for it to be lifted. Uh, the Israelis, uh, you get different answers when you ask them, depending on who you ask, military leaders, political leaders, uh, it just became part of the new normal. And it was that sense of, of endless, grinding, suffocating punishment that I think led me and others to, to say, eventually, there's going to be an explosion. And, and of course, there was. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You've talked about the diplomatic failure of the U.S. in, you know, allowing the situation to come to pass, but also in their response. Has there been a different situation internationally? So I know that the U.S. has taking a stand on Israel's side at the UN, oftentimes against great international opposition. What can we say about the response of the rest of the world, including other major powers like China or Brazil and Russia and India, so forth, which are becoming more influential in aggregate globally? Is the US mostly isolated in its stance on Israel at the moment? How significant is that? I think with each passing day, the US becomes more isolated. Uh, We see this in the the uh, various uh, ceasefire votes or votes in the General Assembly for uh, humanitarian pauses. Um, The United States is very much uh, on the lopsided end of those votes uh, in in voting against those measures. So what we saw initially after the October 7th attacks on, on Israel was this enormous outpouring from virtually everywhere, from every corner of the globe, from every continent, but particularly strong from the United States, Europe, and, and other Western nations. And we're quite vocal in uh, declaring what was up until then usually an American talking point, and that is Israel has a right to defend itself, period. Um, There were no uh, red lines articulated, there were no conditions articulated by uh, West European nations, even when Israel cut all uh, food, medicine, water, uh, and so forth to the entire population. There was outrage when the Russians did that very same thing in Ukraine, uh, and total silence from the West. But since then, we've seen European countries Uh, more and more willing to call for a ceasefire, willing to be critical of, uh, uh, I don't say critical, but but willing to to talk more forcefully about the need to protect civilians and sort of rolling back some of that rhetoric, that green light blank check type rhetoric that we saw in the first uh, week or so uh, after the attacks. Khaled, one other thing I want to ask you too as well, the world is so focused on Gaza right now, but obviously in the West Bank where there's an Israeli occupation, there have been a spate of killings and increased pressure on Palestinians there. Can you talk a bit more about what's going on in Israel and Palestine holistically and the security situation and the political situation as developing at the moment? Yeah, well, we've seen a huge uptick in violence in the West Bank since the situation, in, uh, since the Gaza uh, war started. I think more than 100 Palestinians in the West Bank have already been killed in the past three weeks just in the West Bank. 
and we're seeing um, a, a major spike in settler terrorism against Palestinians as well. Oftentimes, with the aiding and abetting of the Israeli army, which is which is standard, but particularly dangerous now when passions are inflamed. Uh, and there are these emboldened extremists uh, in the West Bank who who want to take out their rage on on any Palestinians and are, and are doing so quite violently. Uh, the army is also participating in that violence. There is a major crackdown happening in the city of Jenin and its uh, adjacent refugee camp. Uh, we've seen airstrikes carried out in the West Bank in Jenin uh, for the first time in 20 years uh, in the West Bank. So there's a, a very, very dangerous situation right now across the occupied Palestinian territory. The most acute suffering, of course, is happening in Gaza, but right now the West Bank is ablaze and the attention of the international community is obviously elsewhere. Uh, so I, I think there is a sense on the part of both the, the military and the settlers that that they can take advantage of that distraction and kind of uh, do whatever they please. And we're seeing quite a lot of uh, destruction uh, happening uh, in places like Janine as well. You know, in response to this violence, there's been big protests around the region in Jordan and Egypt and other countries, uh, you know, directly bordering Israel-Palestine. Can you talk about the prospects of political consequences in other countries as a result of this violence? And furthermore, how could that lead into potentially a regional war, a war bigger than we're seeing right now in Gaza that could involve Lebanon, Iran, and other countries in the region if this is not stopped in a timely manner? Yeah, I, I think the, the situation in Gaza has been has really inflamed public opinion across the Arab world. We've seen, as you said, massive protests in, in, the, uh, in Arab capitals, uh, in some cases, the largest protests in Arab states since the Arab Spring uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, that is certainly alarming for those regimes. Uh, they don't want to see a repeat of mass uh, mobilization. And they have also dealt with those protests quite harshly. But they understand that the clock is ticking. And, as lo and the longer this goes on, the more angry the public will get, not just at the United States and, and Israel and the West, which they clearly are quite angry at the perceived and actually, frankly, very real double standards that, uh, that they're uh, imposing, but also at their own leadership. They are, uh, I think, increasingly going to direct their anger at uh, their leaders and the you know this this inability to respond. People are asking the question of, you know, speeches at the United Nations aren't enough. Uh, you need to do much more uh, as Arab leaders to uh, to defend the rights of Palestinians and to speak up on their behalf, because right now, both uh, Palestinian and Arab public opinion feel as though Arab states have abandoned the Palestinians. You know, Khal, I just want to pivot a bit to the bigger picture. So obviously we're both based in the U.S. and in the U.S. political establishment supporting Israel is considered very axiomatic and they have their own um, historical reasons for doing so. And the way it's viewed is kind of distinct from the rest of the world. Can you talk a bit about how this conflict is viewed, you know, in the global south, you could say? And the reason I bring asked this question is I was watching a speech by uh, Lula da Silva, the leader of Brazil recently, and he referred to the conflict uh, what was unfolding there as effectively a genocide against innocent civilians. Something unheard of. You wouldn't hear that from an American or even really an EU leader. But it clearly shows that there is a 
divide on this subject between you know one block of countries and other. Can you talk about how the rest of the world sees Israel-Palestine outside the West in, in general? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that this war and the campaign against Gaza, the, the man-made humanitarian catastrophe that has been inflicted on Gaza has really been a turning point, I think, in, in the, the global order. Uh, the global South increasingly is uh, being vocal about this, this double standard. Uh, it's very hard, frankly, even for many of us in, in the West to take American and European proclamations about an international rules-based order and international humanitarian law with any degree of seriousness. If, if it's possible to starve an entire population for 23 days while bombarding them uh, and killing more than 3,000 children uh, and destroying wholesale sections of cities, if that's possible, if that's seen as within the limits of international humanitarian law, then, then those concepts don't mean anything. And I think this, this, the contrast is very stark not for folks in the West, maybe a handful of people see that that contrast, but certainly for the global South, where the United States and the, and the West sort of rush to Israel's aid uh, in its moment of distress, but allowing uh, allowing Israel to to commit atrocities of its own uh, with with impunity, and frankly, in some cases, even uh, support, open uh, direct support. Uh, so the, the 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 very notion of a rules based order in international law, I think, have been emptied uh, of meaning. It's it's as though those rules apply only to uh, to the people in the global south, whereas perpetrators in the countries of the global north are are essentially immune from those same rules. And I, I don't think that contrast has ever been more clear than it is now. And, you know, Khaled, last week we had Yusuf Munayir on the show. And we were talking about what may happen the day after this conflict. And with the caveat that we don't know how big this conflict may get and what the conditions are regionally or in Gaza and Israel at the end of it, you know, obviously many of us or most people have seen the conflict ending politically in one of two ways, either a two-state solution or a binational state, including Israelis and Palestinians. You know, following this violence and the kind of mutual traumatization of Israelis and Palestinians, what do you think could be a realistic outcome for a political solution? Because obviously, at the end of it, there's still going to be millions of Israelis and Palestinians living in this territory, and they have to find some way of managing that peacefully. What may still be, or what do you foresee as being a realistic path forward once the fighting eventually ends? Yeah, that's a good question. That's like the million-dollar question. And it's very hard to to talk about the day after when we don't really know what the day of looks like. Uh, we don't know what the end game is. Uh, it, does Hamas still exist? Does Gaza exist? Are there people in Gaza? Um, are you know are people uh, displaced? Is this another kind of ethnic cleansing happening in in the Palestinian history? Um, so we don't know exactly where this ends, but there's no question that certainly on the Israeli side, the trauma and anger and rage of October 7th is being felt um, and, and hardening hearts. And, and there's no question that that same rage, anger, bitterness, sense of abandonment, probably at greater levels, is happening in Gaza uh, among Palestinians, and not just in Gaza, among all Palestinians uh, everywhere. And 
it's hard to imagine anything positive coming out of uh, out of this scale of of death and destruction. And so that's been my fear all along is is in addition to the human costs, allowing this to continue at this level, this level of violence and destruction is so irresponsible because you are just sowing the seeds for future bloodshed and uh, bitterness and instability and violence. And that's just really, I think that's an abdication of of the responsibility of the United States and, and other uh, Western powers. So I, I don't really see anything positive coming out of this either. Uh, you know, people sometimes talk about, well, you know, now that the Palestinian issue is back on the agenda, it's going to receive more attention and maybe we'll see some kind of political process unfold in addition to dealing with the, you know, a horrific humanitarian uh, fallout. But I don't really see that happening. I don't see the Americans investing much in that. They haven't been willing to to invest in this issue. And I think the international community will be so distracted with just picking up the, the pieces of whatever's left of Gaza from a human and humanitarian standpoint, massive reconstruction, massive assistance uh, that that needs to flow in whenever this all stops. And there's not going to be any incentive, really, to to go beyond that. Certainly, an Israeli government that is the most extreme in, in history is not going to be interested in pursuing uh, any kind of political process that would lead to a Palestinian state. So I don't know where this ends, but it will probably take a generation before uh, we see the conditions for any kind of resolution, whether it is two states or or one state, you know, and let's not forget also on the Palestinian side, you have a, a complete leadership failure. I mean, this, the decision by Hamas to undertake this attack, knowing full well the costs that would be uh, inflicted on Palestinians, I think was also irresponsible. Now, maybe they overcalculated, maybe they didn't anticipate being quite as, you know, quote unquote, successful. But but they have failed, and and certainly the leadership in the West Bank has failed uh, as well. So I don't see any prospect for moving forward without the emergence of a more credible, effective, and coherent Palestinian political leadership. And we're just not seeing that right now. But you know that that's a necessary but insufficient uh, requirement for for any progress uh, politically or diplomatically. Obviously, the U.S. has been a huge enabler of the Israeli military and political establishments, continued occupation of the West Bank and blockade over Gaza. And now that the war is going on, they play a very integral role in facilitating that as well, too. What would you recommend the U.S. administration do in the short term and long term to put a lid on this conflict and bring it to some sort of long-term conclusion? And how do you see, if you see any daylight between a Biden administration and a prospective Trump administration uh, if it comes to power in 2024? Yeah, I think what's urgently needed now is a ceasefire. You know, I'm not sure what it will take to convince administration officials that the stated goals of destroying Hamas are not going to be achieved. Um, The Israelis are going to need some kind of face-saving measure to allow them to, to stop bombing uh, without having fully achieved their stated goals. The Americans can help them do that uh, if they're willing to. Uh, Hamas will also need a way to climb down from uh, from where it is. 
But really, I think it has to come from from Washington. Uh, Washington has to be able to say, here's what is needed for a ceasefire. Here are red lines and guardrails around what you, Israel, can and cannot do. That's just a minimal requirement. But eventually, there's going to have to be some articulation of what a ceasefire will entail, short of the fantastical goal of uh, wiping Hamas out. And just to add to that too, do you see a difference between this administration and prospectively another administration? A Republican administration, there's no question, would have even fewer red lines than the current Biden administration. Uh, so it, it's likely to to give a, a, an even brighter green light if that's if that's possible. I think if we were if this were a Republican administration right now we we'd probably see no references to international law even in the abstract or to talk of humanitarian corridors. I think that's that's entirely likely that none of those would even be on the table. So as bad as it is now, I think it it could actually be even worse. I was curious how Palestinian Americans are feeling at the moment, uh, you know, given they're watching this happen in Gaza. Many people have families in Gaza and the West Bank, too. Like, how was the reaction and the sentiment among Palestinian Americans uh, seeing all this unfold, uh, given especially the fact that the U.S. is putting very few guardrails at all in the Israeli response? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that Palestinian Americans in particular, but also more broadly Arab Americans, and I would even say the American Muslim community, are quite traumatized by what we've seen in the past uh, three and a half weeks. The, the unconditional support that our elected leaders have lent uh, to, to Israel and the delayed or minimal response to the humanitarian needs of Palestinians, I think a lot of Palestinians uh, in this country and Arab Americans feel dehumanized, that it's not very often that you see this stark uh, juxtaposition of the intense humanization of Israeli victims uh, that we saw in the first uh, week or two after the attacks in Israel. And we watch the media and we, everybody knows their names and their family members. And we we're, we're, have this round-the-clock coverage uh, meanwhile, right next door, uh, Palestinians are dying by the hundreds every day, and it's almost completely invisible. Uh, there's much more attention paid to it now, but that initial juxtaposition of a, a thoroughly humanized Israeli civilians and totally dehumanized or negated Palestinians was very jarring, I think, for certainly for Palestinians, but even for other Arab Americans. Um, I have many friends and uh, uh, in Gaza and friends who have family in Gaza, and virtually every one of them has lost not just one or two members, but multiples. Um, uh, one of my dearest friends lost 27 family members over the course of a week. Um, so it's devastating. It's devastating that our elected officials don't recognize the humanity of Palestinians enough that they can speak out against it. It's very easy to do. You can still support Israel and express solidarity for Israeli civilians, and you can even support Israel's right to self-defense uh, without negating the humanity of Palestinians. The fact that 
that many of them can to the fact that our elected officials and media are angry when Palestinians or their supporters go out into the streets to support, to express solidarity for Palestinians who are dying in horrific numbers. The fact that they're seen as supporting terrorists, that's so dehumanizing. And it's, it's, really, it's really taken a toll, I think, on almost everyone I know in the uh, Arab American and, and Muslim communities. Khalid, thanks for joining us today on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. That was Khalid El-Gindi, the director of the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute, and the author of the book, Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal review by David Brelo. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating and review wherever you find our podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Murtaz Hossein.